This is part four of this series that we've been in for obviously four weeks now called Saved. And we're thinking about this idea, this word that's used in the Bible, that's used a lot in the church, this idea that you can be saved. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean for God to rescue us? That's what we've been thinking about and we've been enjoying various aspects of that and uh, and pondering what does it mean and specifically what does it mean for us? Because ultimately when we talk about this, we will sense very clearly that God is kind of putting his finger on us and saying, okay, what's your response? What do you say to this? What do you do in response to this? Now this morning's uh, message, I'll get to it in a moment, let me just mention this before I forget. If you don't have a Bible in uh, modern English that you can understand... Uh, I do have some New Testaments, okay, and I don't really want to keep my New Testaments, I'd rather give them to you. So if you don't have an understandable modern English Bible, uh, please come and grab one of these, there's some by the door on your way out. They're free, you're welcome to take them. I'd love for you to be able to read more uh, from this amazing uh, thing that God has given us, the Bible. So these are available, I'll just leave these up here. Now this morning, I'm actually going to have a message from two speakers. And so, just to allow the first speaker to come up, I'm going to invite Tim just to uh, start us off in prayer as we head into the message. Thanks, Tim. May we be a people who are purified by your blood, and so we will be better able to live for you and glorify Jesus our Savior. So, Father, help us now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Good morning. My name is Saul. Or if if you speak Latin and you prefer, I answer to Paul as well. I was raised in a town called Tarsus. It's in Cilicia, or on your maps now, I think it's called Turkey. And and I was raised there, and even though I I was raised there, actually I was raised in a Jewish home. I, I was absolutely, completely and utterly Jewish. I was as Jewish as anyone you've ever met. Now you might say, so what? But I'll tell you this, to be a Jew is to be proud of who you are. And no one could be more proud than me. You see, I, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. This is one of the twelve tribes of Israel. This was the tribe that gave Israel uh, her first king. And so people from the tribe of Benjamin would walk with their head held high. I was raised well. I was taught well. In fact, I did so well that when it came to that point in time where I got to be uh, a, a, an adult, a, a student, I, I got to be a student under the greatest teacher of his generation, the Rabbi Reverend Dr. Gamaliel of Jerusalem. I got to sit at his feet. I got to learn from the very best. If there were league tables of Jews, I was right at the top. If there was a Premier League, a top league, I'd be right at the very top. You see, I knew all that there was to know. I did all that there was to do. You see, if there's anything to be said about God, we Jews know that it needs to be said by a Jew. And if there's anything to be done to please God, then we know that it's what we do that would please Him. You see, I was thoroughly convinced that it was not just the Jews, but I myself that had God all in a box, as you might say, all contained. I knew who God was and I was passionately committed to Him, not like the others. See, I grew up in Tarsus. And all around I saw the boys and the girls, the men and the women, these people, these Gentiles. The Gentile, by the way, is a non-Jew. You as well, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I looked at these Gentiles and I, I, I used to laugh at them. 
I used to think, my goodness, these people don't even realize what they're like, what they're doing. They don't even seem to care. They're not even trying to please God as far as I was concerned. You see, I was the best, and I was keeping the rules, and I knew the answers, and I was passionate. I was zealous for God. I heard about this man. He was from Nazareth, of all places. A chap called Jesus, son of a carpenter, and apparently there were some rumors about his family background too. And this, this Jesus, he, I don't know what he was doing, but people were spreading rumors, they were talking about him, they were getting caught up with who he was, and I have to tell you, the authorities in Jerusalem weren't impressed. Gamaliel and the others, they were not excited about Jesus at all, and it, it seemed to be building towards something, and eventually it all fell very flat, because Jesus ended up in Jerusalem, and he, he locked horns with some of the brightest and the best of my peers and, and mentors, uh, and in the end they brought him to trial, and they found him guilty of blasphemy. Oh, history books will tell you that it was the Romans that killed him uh, on a cross, and technically that's true, but actually it wasn't the Romans that found him guilty, it was us. Well, we tried him, not for calling himself king in place of Caesar, that was what we said to them. No, we found him guilty of making himself equal with God. No way. That is not possible. We know God, and you're not it. You're not him. You cannot be. It's not possible. He was found guilty of blasphemy, and so we took him to the Romans and trumped up charges and all of that. We got him killed. End of story. Job done. You'd think that they'd quieten down after that. But the followers of this Jesus just kept on going. They kept on growing. It seemed like they were coming out of the woodwork. Everywhere you turned, there was more of them, these followers of Jesus. What in the world? I mean, what is going to convince them to stop? This is nonsense. And so I decided it would be part of my job to deal with them. I, I tell you, w without any hesitation, that I was absolutely their greatest persecutor. I was the one that went after them more than anybody else. I was involved in arresting the followers of Jesus, or the way, as it was called. I was there giving approval when one of them was stoned to death. I was involved, I was right at the forefront, I was really uh, on the cutting edge of dealing with these followers of Jesus. Because they needed to be eradicated, they were a cancer on Judaism. They needed to be cut out and dealt with so that the purity of religion could continue, so that God could be known. I got permission to go to Damascus. It's quite a journey to Damascus, and, and I walked toward Damascus, and as I was on that road, my life was transformed. As I look back, and uh, think about what was happening, or what was going through my mind and my heart in that moment, I have to tell you that, that there was no way in the world that I would ever be changed. I mean, I was, I was the brightest, I was the best, I was the strongest, I was the most respected, I had fame and fortune, everybody was talking about me, the Christians were scared of me, I was the one, and there was, it would take, well, what would it take? For me to be convinced, I'll tell you what it would take, there was only one thing that could do it. As I was walking along the road to Damascus, suddenly, there was this light brighter than any light I'd ever seen, brighter than the sun. And I was blinded, but I knew that it wasn't just the, the sun, it was more than that, it was a person. And I spoke, and he spoke, we spoke to each other. And it was Jesus, risen from the dead, talking to me. And I tell you, that was the only way. That was the only way 
that I could be convinced. And he did that. He, he, he met me, he encountered me, he proved to me that he was risen from the dead. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, couldn't, I, I did believe it, but I couldn't get my head around it. It took me ages to work this through and process it. And somehow, in God's mercy... He turned me around from being someone out to kill every follower of Jesus to being perhaps the most famous Christian that has ever lived. I I still can't get my mind around how the the God who I was actually, I, I was attacking him. You see, when that light shone on the road to Damascus, a light shone into my heart and what I thought were, were good deeds turned out to be bad deeds. What I thought was righteousness turned out to be the ultimate unrighteousness. And I was convicted and I was guilty. And I realized I'm, I'm not the most righteous, I'm the chief of sinners. And yet God in his amazing mercy appointed me to go and to tell others about this risen Jesus. And so that's what I've done. Gone to Jews and also to Gentiles, the people I used to laugh at. I've gone to tell them that there's a way. For them to be righteous before God. Twenty-ish plus years later, I I wrote a letter to the church in Rome. But don't get me started on that. If I start on that, you'll never get your preacher back. So I'm going to hand over to him for the rest of the morning. Thank you. Okay, so we're in the series uh, called Saved. And uh, we're thinking about what does it mean to be rescued by God. Okay? Grab a Bible. It's always a good thing to do, isn't it? (laughs) Grab one of the blue Bibles in front of you, if you like. Turn to page 799, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 10. I thought it would be good for us to hear from Paul this morning, because I've mentioned a couple of times the fact that I I love Romans in part because it's written by someone who was such a skeptic. You know, and you hear this charge coming from people that, you know, oh, Christians, they're sort of brainwashed, and they go to Sunday school, and they sing the songs, and and all that kind of stuff. But Paul wasn't like that. In fact, if anybody ever had reason to not be a Christian, it was him. You know, for, for him to be turned around from being the ultimate enemy, number one, of Christianity, to being the ultimate ambassador for Christ... I mean, Paul is just an amazing example of that. And so this letter that he wrote to the Christians in Rome is full of of pure gold for us. As we think about, okay, so what does this mean for us? What is this gospel, this good news? What what is the message of Christianity? That's what we're really trying to get our, our minds around in this series. Because actually, even though the Bible is a big, big, thick book, it all boils down to what we've been talking about. The fact that God makes a way, has made a way, for you and for me, even though we don't deserve it, to get what we don't deserve. To be able to come to him and and to have right standing so that we can stand before God, not scared of judgment, but humbly confident that we have right standing before him. That we are not his enemy anymore, but we've been reconciled to him even better, as we saw last week. That we're, we're adopted into his family, and we belong. Only God could do that. 
And we've looked at chapters, what was it, 3 and 5 and 8, we're sort of uh, skipping like a stone on a lake through the book of Romans, and we're going to touch down one more time, uh, this time in chapter 10, as we finish up this series and think about what it means to be saved. And in this section, Paul is really concerned with the whole issue of the, the Jews, the Israelites, his people, and the Gentiles, and, and how the two are worked out and and actually the section we're going to read isn't very complicated so we're just going to walk our way through it and I'll try and clarify as we go chapter 10 verse 1 he says brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved there's the word here's Paul the apostle uh, the, the finest of Jews I mean the ultimate credentialed Jew, the best CV you've ever seen, and he's talking about the Jews, and he's saying the exact opposite of what he would have said before. He's saying, they're lost. They're they're in trouble. They're hopeless. They really are desperately in need of being saved. He doesn't say, I wish they could save themselves, because he knows that's not possible. He says, my heart's desire is that they might be saved. Now, heart's desire, that feels a bit strong. I'll tell you how strong it was. Just uh, scan your eye back to the chapter before, chapter 9, verse 3. Amazing thing he says here. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Can you imagine? He's so desperate for them to be saved that he says, if it were possible, I'd switch places. I'd trade places and and, and be cursed and cut off from Christ if they could be saved. And what does that tell us? It tells us what it means to not be saved, doesn't it? To not be saved, it means to be cursed. Use another word, another biblical word, to be damned. To be eternally damned, to be condemned, to be separated, cut off from Christ who is life itself. To to be dead and dying and heading towards death and forever death and separation from God. I mean, you can't make it much more bold and serious than that, can you? And Paul's saying, if I could, I'd trade places so that they, I so want them to be saved. That's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? I, I could wish myself cursed and cut off from Christ. You see, their situation is grave, it's serious. And so when you get to chapter 10, he's saying, my heart's desire is for them to be saved. Actually, before we start into 10, let's just grab a few more verses from the end of chapter 9, because this really helps us by setting up uh, a contrast that is going to flow through this passage. Let's, Let's go with this a little bit here. It says, verse 30, it's under the little title, Israel's Unbelief. He says, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, remember what Paul said? They didn't even seem to try. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, on the other hand, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Let's just pause and let that soak for a second. So, people who weren't even trying get righteousness, and those who are trying to be righteous don't even get righteousness. I mean, hang on a minute. No, surely that's backwards, Paul. Surely it's the ones that make the effort make the grade, right? And those who don't try don't get anywhere. I mean, I've been told that my whole life. If you're not going to turn up to maths, you're not going to pass your GCSE, right? 
No, 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 Paul's saying forget GCSE. What we're talking about here is righteousness with God. Righteousness before God. And those who tried by the law failed. And those who didn't even seem to be trying received it. That sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? And he carries on. He says, verse 32, why not? Why didn't they receive it? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he quotes this verse from the Old Testament to say, okay, they're trying, but something made them to stumble. Something made them to to fall in their pursuit. What was it that just threw them off course? What was it they could not cope with? It was Jesus, the stumbling stone. The one put in the way. And so when Jesus came along, people like Saul of Tarsus and Gamaliel and others, they looked at Jesus and said, no way. There's no way that can be what God has been trying to get us to. No, no, we'll keep working. Thank you very much. We'll keep trying. We'll keep working. And Jesus became the reason that they ended up further away from God than if they'd not even bothered. You see, Jesus is the the point of division because if if they're trying to do it by works, then what's he saying about the Gentiles? They get it by faith. And faith and works are opposites. Works is where you work. Faith is where you don't work, right? Works is where you try. Faith is where you don't try. You trust. That's what faith is. It's trusting. Which is why for the past few weeks we've continued to use the stool to say, look, biblical faith is not, I believe... The stool exists. I believe God exists. Of course you do. So does the devil. That's not, that's not that much of a, a deal, okay? Or, I know lots of facts about the stool. I'm very well educated about the stool. Great, that doesn't mean you have trust in the stool. If you're going to say, I trust the stool, I have faith in the stool, you have to put your weight on it. And when you put your weight on it, you're demonstrating this is trust, but you're not actually doing anything. You see the difference? Stools going to get me eventually. Put the microphone back on. The difference is either you're trying or you're trusting. Either it's your effort or it's not effort. And it's accepting what God has done. And Paul's setting up this contrast between the two and trying to make it as clear as possible. And then he gets into chapter 10, where we were just now, and he says, My heart's desire is that the Israelites, that they may be saved. Now, why aren't they getting saved? Because they're over there, they're not on the stool. They're trying, they're not trusting. And so he says in verse 2, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. That's a very important thing to realize. When we're talking about salvation, it's not about zeal. A lot of people say that, even today, people say things like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or a Sikh or a a Jew or a Catholic or a Methodist or or a New Age, it doesn't really matter what you are as long as it works for you. You know, as long as you're passionate about it, that's great. Don't be too passionate, then you're a fanatic and that's a problem, but you know, be passionate, be zealous and that's good. That's nonsense. That's like me going down to Chippenham Station and saying, okay, I'm passionately committed to getting to London and getting on the train on the other side of the platform and ending up in Bristol. No matter how passionate I am about getting to London, I'm going to Bristol if I'm on the wrong train. Zeal itself is not the key. You can be zealously wrong. It's kind of humbling, isn't it? You could be sitting here this morning zealously wrong. 
Maybe you've uh, been zealously committed to the idea that if the good outweighs the bad, it'll all work out in the end. Sorry, that's wrong. The Bible doesn't support that. It says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are good enough. You might think, well, if I'm better than others, that's good enough. And we're good at that, aren't we? We're good at sort of establishing our own righteousness. We watch television programs and we watch heinous crimes and we think to ourselves, I wouldn't do that. I'm not like that. And yet we we somehow sort of say, well, that makes me good enough. We compare ourselves with our neighbours or with that, uh, you know, dodgy relative or whoever. We do this comparison thing and we think, I'm good enough. And even though we may not be Jewish and even though we may not even be religious, we're striving to be good enough according to our own standards. As long as I don't do such and such, I'm okay. Sorry, that just doesn't work. You can be as zealous as you like in your pursuit of self-righteousness. It doesn't work. Actually, you can be as zealous as you like in your pursuit of religion. You might say, I'm going to come to church every week. I'm going to sing the hymns loud. When they pray, my eyes are not going to just be shut. They're going to be squeezed tight, you know. Offering comes around, I'm going to put it all in there. Credit card and everything. You know, you can do as much as you like. You can be as zealous as you like. I'm telling you, none of that, even in church, means that God is impressed. Because God says, trust. And if you're zealously pursuing righteousness in your own effort... You're just like the Jews that Paul was talking about. And, and, and really, God calls us to, away from that. He calls us to turn our back, not just on the bad things we do, but on everything that we do. To co- turn our backs even on ourselves, our self-love, our self-obsession, our, our self-righteousness. Turn our backs and say, no, I'm going to put my trust in Christ. That's what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, and they sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that everyone, sorry, that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. How do we get righteousness? He keeps saying it, and we've heard it so many times. It's everyone who believes, everyone who trusts can't establish your own, you can't work for your own, you can't get your act together, pull up your bootstraps, turn over a new leaf, New Year's resolutions, none of that. It doesn't work. You know the ironic thing about this? I think irony is the right term, although I'm never quite sure. The ironic thing about this is that just like Paul looked at the Gentiles and said, it looks like they're not even trying compared to the Jews. Actually, we all try. It's human nature. Whatever view of God or eternity or judgment we might have, in our own way of thinking, we try to be good enough. We try to compare, contrast, establish, do it all. Paul says, no, that does not work. Only Christ works. You see, it's not what you can do. It's the fact that it's been done. Job done. When I preach, I, I like to put uh, my message really boiled down into a, a single sentence summary. Uh, and I'm going to have to apologize for my single sentence summary because this morning it is corny. Okay? And I couldn't figure out a way around it. I'm just using the words in the text. And I can't avoid the fact that it's slightly corny. And you're just going to have to say that was corny and forgive me for it. But really, you see, what Paul is saying here is that we cannot achieve God's righteousness. A righteousness before God is not something we achieve, it's something we receive when we believe. You see what I mean? 
A bit Eve, 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 you know, you know, I'm not sure about it. But, but it's the truth. <laughs> That's what he's saying. The righteousness before God that, that we all need is not something we can achieve. It's something we receive when we believe. That's just quite memorable, isn't it? Forgive the corniness, let's hang on to that, because that's the truth here. It's not something we achieve, it's something that we receive as a gift when we believe, when we trust in him. And he carries on with that thought in these next few verses. First of all, um, oh, verse 5, he's talking about the law, and if you try and live perfect, you've really got to pull it off. But, but verse 6, he says, the righteousness that is by faith, this good righteousness that is actually available to us, it says, and this is slightly complex, but, but it's as if the righteousness itself is speaking to us. And what it says is this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the deep? What? Well, okay, so he's pulling this phrase from the Old Testament and he explains himself. Do you notice that in brackets? Right in there? Do not say, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's saying he can't achieve it. Here we are on earth as as humans who are going to stand before a holy God and we realize that we're desperately hopeless, we need help. Okay, let's reach up and let's grab a saviour and let's bring him down. Can't do it. And you might be thinking, well, you know, I'm just not tall enough. <laughs> I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how tall you are, you, you can't reach. You cannot reach high enough and grab hard enough and pull strong enough to get a saviour down. It just simply doesn't work like that. And second thing, you can't reach down into the deep or into the abyss, the place of the dead, and bring Jesus back to life. You see, really what it's saying here is that in, in our terms, Christmas and Easter are God's work, not ours. You ever notice that? Christmas is coming soon, you probably don't want to hear that yet, but you know, Christmas comes and there's lights and there's music and John Lennon playing in every shopping mall and all that kind of stuff, and and Christmas comes and and you think back to the first Christmas and uh, and the stable and Mary and Joseph and angels and, uh, and shepherds and wise men and donkeys and stuff, and you know, all of these images come flooding to your mind. The Christmas story doesn't go like this, does it? Now, at just the right time, when everything was perfect, because the people had pulled themselves together, and they'd stood before the angels of God and declared to the angels, go get Jesus for us, uh, that Jesus then came and was born in the manger, you know, laid in the manger. It doesn't work like that. The angels came and the shepherds were shocked. The angel came and Mary was shocked. The angel came and Joseph was shocked. You know, all the the visits, the angels, the the, the prophecies, all of this, it was all initiated by God. We didn't make Christmas happen. God made Christmas happen. Isn't that the case? God chose to become a human and to come down to the earth and to be a little baby boy that grew up into a man that lived a perfect life and then we get to Easter. And guess what? That was God's work too. You see, it wasn't the case, was it, that Jesus on Good Friday died on the cross, they took his body down, laid him in a tomb, and then on the Sunday morning, some of his disciples, who were really passionately zealous, broke into the tomb and then got Jesus back from the dead. That doesn't work. You try it sometime, well don't try it, it it does not work. We don't have power over death like that. That's the point of Easter. That Jesus, who came, God's choice, 
went to the cross, God's choice, and was killed for, uh, really killed for sins that he hadn't committed. His record was perfect. He had no rap sheet, nothing. He was absolutely clean. And yet he died a criminal's death in your place and in mine. He paid the penalty for all the bad things you've done, said, or thought, past, present, future. Total weight on him. He took it all. He paid the price. And they took his body down from the cross. He was absolutely, definitely, very, very dead. And they put him in a tomb, and they sealed the tomb, and they put guards around the tomb because they were a little bit nervous about some disciples not resuscitating him or something like that, but stealing the body. And so they did everything they they could to stop it. And guess what? He rose from the dead. Why? Because God raised him. Because Jesus, God, has the power over death. He can do that. And so today he lives and offers life to us. Now, here's the thing. Did we make Christmas happen? Did we reach up and make it? No, of course not. It was his initiative. Did we reach down and and pull Jesus back to life? Don't be silly. Of course we didn't. That was him too. And so you see what Paul's saying here with these, these words. Who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the deep? No one. Of course you won't. But what does it say? If it's not something we can achieve, how are we to receive God's righteousness? Verse 8. What does it say? It says the word is near you. It's, it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we're proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. There's a contrast here. It's not how high you can reach or how low you can reach and how strong you can pull. It's nothing to do with what you can do. It's simply about your response. The response of your heart to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. A response from the heart that just flows out of your mouth. Jesus, he's the Lord. He's the one that's come from heaven. He's the one that's raised from the dead. I've got nothing. I can do nothing. I offer nothing. I I can't achieve a thing. But I receive because I believe. Uh, And I trust. That's what believe means. And I entrust myself fully to what Jesus has done. You see, it's nothing to do with works. It's completely to do with trust. He goes on to clarify the idea of believing and the idea of confessing. Let's just look at that and and then we'll be able to wrap things up. In verse 11, first of all, what does it mean to believe? As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's what it means to believe. To believe is to trust in. And if you trust in him, you'll never be put to shame. Believe that he rose from the dead and trust yourself to him. You know, sometimes people use a phrase, something like this, that it's, because it's all about faith, it's like a leap in the dark. That faith is an uninformed kind of entrusting yourself to something you can't see. I'm telling you, that is nonsense. Biblical faith doesn't say, you've just got to trust, you've just got to trust. It says, check the facts. Check them out for yourself. Do all the research you want to do. And find out if Jesus rose from the dead or not. Because if they have a documentary on television this week where they definitively prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, we won't be uh, opening the doors next Sunday. 
church will be finished all over the world because it's all built on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet for 2,000 years they haven't been able to prove he didn't rise from the dead. And it seems like those who try to understand that, try to disprove it, end up being convinced by it and, and becoming followers of Jesus. You see, you can check the facts, you can chase the facts for yourself. In fact, if you were in Rome when this letter was written, and you were sitting in the church when this letter was read out, if you were sitting there as a mild skeptic, or even a violent skeptic, doesn't matter, if you were sitting there thinking, I'm not convinced, you could have gone and talked to eyewitnesses. Maybe some in Rome, certainly spread across the world, you could have gone to Jerusalem, you could have met people that would say, hey, I'll tell you what, this is exactly what I saw. I wasn't drunk. Uh, These are the circumstances. Go and talk to these others. They will corroborate. There's nothing dodgy going on here. We couldn't have designed this because there's all these different people in different times and different uh, occasions that are seeing the risen Christ. I tell you, if they wanted to prove Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, they would have done it, but they couldn't. If the Jews wanted to disprove it, which of course they wanted to, they couldn't because they didn't have the body and they never produced the evidence and Christianity just kept on growing. And the Romans who were embarrassed by the whole thing, they would have loved to have disproved the resurrection, but they couldn't produce the body either. All people could find were eyewitnesses and convincing evidence that Jesus actually, really, historically, definitely rose from the dead. And because of that, The faith that the Bible is asking us to place in Christ is a faith, I would say, founded on the facts of reality. And you can check them out. Be a skeptic. Do your research. You know, go go study. Go, Go look anywhere you like. There's nothing that we have to hide. As long as the things you look at are fair, I think you'll be convinced. Jesus rose from the dead. And so that's what it means to believe. It means to trust And then verses 12 and 13, uh, going on this confessing, how does our mouth come into this? Verse 12, he says, For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I was trying to think of of an analogy, and this isn't a perfect one at all, but as far as it goes, it'll do the job. Imagine that, that you're on a ship, and your ship is crossing the ocean, and it's night time, and your ship has a, a surprising encounter with a rather large iceberg. Okay, so your ship is now descending rapidly to meet the ocean floor, and you end up in the water. Okay, you're in the middle of the ocean. It's freezing cold. You're practically a dead person already, right? What are you going to do? Swim that way or that way? doesn't matter. You're not going to save yourself. But then there's a rescue boat. You don't know where it's come from. You you don't know all the details about it, but there's a rescue boat. And and it's kind of simple. They will go to those who call. And if you're in the water uh, and you say, I'm not going to call, they can find me. Careful. But you wouldn't do that. You're treading water. You're, You're feeling the life draining from your body. You'd cry out with everything in you. Here I am. Come rescue me. Please, I need you. Rescue me. And over in the boat, they wouldn't say, Ah, I don't like that accent. Ah, sounds like the wrong color person. Ah, sounds like they're not rich enough. (laughs) Rescuers would come wherever there's a voice and they'd lift you out. Uh, And in a certain sense, I think that's what he's saying here. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, doesn't matter who they are, Jew, Gentile, good, bad, the best of the best or the worst of the worst, doesn't matter. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, the gospel isn't narrow. 
It's not restrictive or exclusive. It's, it's wide open. Invitation to anybody on this planet. All you've got to do is stop doing your own work. Stop trying. Stop straining. Stop striving. Stop trying to pull your act together and say, actually, no, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. God, I trust completely in you. I believe that you raised Christ from the dead. That's the convincer. That's the one that's got me. And I confess that you're Lord. I'm trusting you. That's the gospel. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And all the things we've talked about, right standing before God, reconciliation with God, not being his enemy anymore, adoption, to be part of God's family, to be able to approach God and say, Abba, Dad, to be able to approach him intimately and boldly, All of that is available, not because we deserve it, because none of us do, but because the job has been done. Christ has paid the price. He's he's died in our place. He rose from the dead, and now he offers life to all who will call on him. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be saved. And I suppose the question is simple. How do we respond? I don't like any uh, hint of of manipulation, I've I've mentioned that before, and so I'm not going to sort of do an emotional kind of response moment at this point. Okay, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I just don't want to do that. What I want to do is simply give us uh, a few moments of silence where we can, in our hearts, respond to God. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or stand up or raise your hand or anything like that because you might look back and say, I'm saved because I raised my hand. No, you're not saved because you did anything. If you're saved, it's because Christ did everything and you trusted in him. And so what I'd like us to do is just take maybe 30 seconds or so of silence uh, and uh, together, uh, but individually, we will respond to God in our hearts. And, and I don't know where you're at in the journey. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're going, wait, 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 wait. I'm not even sure God exists. That's okay. For the next 30 seconds, you can say, Hey God, I don't know you exist, but if you do, it sounds too important to let it go. Would you please show me? If you don't exist, I feel silly, but only for 30 seconds and nobody knows. Or maybe you say, I'm getting there. I'm getting there, but I'm still not clear about such and such. Now, tell God that. Say, God, this is a question I still have. Maybe something about what Jesus has done. Maybe something about your own life. You say, surely you can't forgive that, can you? Whatever the question is, just express it to God. And as I have said before, encourage you again. Come and talk to one of us. We'd love to to talk to you about uh, your questions and and your concerns and your doubts. Because we've had them too. You know, it's not like we've got it all together. You know, we've had questions and doubts and concerns. And there are answers. And so please come and talk to us. But talk first to God about it. Or maybe there are some here who say, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but, but I'm convinced. That, that rising from the dead thing, that, that's the convincer for me. And I, I started coming to this church maybe last week, maybe two weeks ago, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, and, and I've come, and I, when I first came, I felt like a window shopper, sort of looking in from the outside, kind of intrigued, but not giving much away. And suddenly I'm sitting here, and I find myself feeling like an insider, like, yeah, I believe that, I trust that. Tell God that. 
I'm not going to give you special words to say or whatever. You can talk about your sin. You can say sorry. You can say I trust you. You can say I want to do that stool thing. You can put it in whatever terms you want. God understands because it's not the words you say. It's the trust of your heart. It's the cry of your heart saying, Jesus, I want to trust you. I want you to save me. You're the Lord. Rescue me. And let me encourage you, if that's your response this morning, respond to God. Allow this to be a a moment where in the quietness, your heart cries out, God, I trust you. Forgive me. Make me yours. Make me part of your family. Oh God, I need you. However you want to put it, wherever you're at, let me just uh, encourage us to have maybe 30 seconds of silence and do personal business with God, responding to what He has done. Not thinking we can do anything, but giving up on doing and responding to what's done. Let's just take that time and then I'll wrap up at the end of it.